I'm excited to get into the book of Revelation a little bit. Um, I was telling Josh that when I listen to the scriptures at night sometimes and, and uh, when I'm just awake or can't get to sleep, there's a couple of different books or places in the Bible that I tend to go, and Revelation is one of them. And even though I don't understand a lot of the book of Revelation, I just find it so deeply encouraging, this profound picture of great cosmic spiritual battle and Christ the winner, Christ triumphant over all. And it's just, uh, it's thrilling, it's, uh, it's energizing, it's, it's filled with hope or fills me with hope. You know, so many people live so much of their lives under a shadow of pessimism and despair. And even good, solid Christians uh, often show by their countenance or their words that they inwardly feel defeated or have lost hope of victory. But there is a better way of living and thinking for us because our Savior and our leader, Jesus Christ, is supremely victorious, and that's the picture that we have of him here in Revelation 19. We have before us this morning, I believe, the most thrilling and exalted image of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. It is the image of Christ at his second coming. This vision is meant to convince us that in spite of all that Satan does, Jesus Christ will triumph in the end. It is meant to create a hope of victory, an expectancy of victory deep down inside of you and me right now. The future belongs to Christ. And if you belong to him, everything is going to be all right. Uh, but not just all right, it's going to be glorious and victorious. Paul said, we are waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our supreme hope is that Jesus Christ will return to this earth a second time in unspeakable power and glory to establish his kingdom. Jesus himself promised this. He said, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Mark 13, 26. Jesus Christ will come back to deliver us from evil, to destroy every enemy, to create a new heaven and a new earth where we will live with him forever in perfect joy, in perfect bodies, uh, with no sadness, tears, death, or pain. And all of history, every event that happens every day, all of creation is moving toward the second coming of Jesus Christ. Every tick of the clock moves us closer to our blessed hope. And we're to live in that sense of expectancy. We're to live looking forward to this. Paul said we eagerly wait for the fulfillment of this promise in Romans 8. We live in hope of the glory of the return of Jesus Christ. It is like having the most awesome vacation you can ever imagine coming up and you just 
find yourself always thinking about how grand it's going to be. Years ago, I was in purchasing it at DZ Manufacturing, and we had to reject a whole lot of uh, alumin, extruded aluminum uh, running boards that were shipped from our supplier. And I felt so bad for the salesman because who I'd got, who'd become good, good friends with. But when I broke the news to him that we we're going to have to uh, reject this shipment, he said, "You know, Reed, my wife and I are leaving for Paris this weekend, and I don't think anything could discourage me today." And that is the power of hope on our emotions and on our hope on our hearts. And believe me, we are going somewhere way better than Paris. Well, this glorious return of Christ is what John sees here in Revelation 19. These verses do not reveal anything about dates or timelines. They do reveal the glory and the power of Jesus Christ who is coming to save us. This is not a weak person who is coming to save us and set things right. You know, if somebody broke into your house and you and your whole family were in danger, you would, would you want somebody strong and courageous or weak and timid to come and save you? You would want the strongest, boldest person you know, armed to the teeth, to rescue you. And that is what we have. We have a mighty Savior, fierce and to be feared, coming to save us. And you know what? We are going to need that. The book of Revelation contains vision after vision of an end-time opposition to the Lord and to His people that is massive and it is brutal. It is global. It is supernatural. It is energized by Satan. It is demonic forces intertwined with totalitarian governments and human rulers. And we need and we will need an all-powerful Savior willing to wage war and spill blood coming to get us. And that is what we are given here in this passage. We are given a vision of Jesus Christ breaking through the heavens into this world, a Jesus Christ who is fully capable of putting down all rebellion and to bring his people into eternal safety from all enemies forever. He is our Savior, Protector, Lord Jesus Christ. Several years ago, uh, we had the privilege of going to Rome, and we went to the Sistine Chapel where uh, we saw Michelangelo's uh, awesome painting called The Last Judgment. And in that painting, Jesus Christ descends from heaven as a fierce warrior, just like what we see in this passage in Revelation 19. Our tour guide, who at best was, would be a nominal believer, if, if at all, introduced us outside of the chapel. He, he pointed to a picture of, of this last judgment. I believe it was on a screen. And he introduced us to this painting by saying, 
When Jesus Christ came the first time, he came as a helpless babe. Then he said, when Jesus Christ comes the second time, he will come as a gladiator. And when he said the word gladiator, chills went up and down my spine. Jesus Christ comes back as a gladiator. He comes with a sword, ready to fight, ready to deal out death and destruction to the enemies of God. And I cannot speak for any, anyone else and I'm sure there's probably a lot of different feelings or reactions to this image of Christ here in Revelation 19. But I am so glad that I serve an almighty Christ. Jesus Christ is not afraid of anybody. In Exodus 13:5, Moses said, The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. The ESV says, The Lord is a man of war. That's not all that he is. He is much, much more than that, and we usually focus on those things, but he is also a warrior. And I personally don't know why anyone who is on God's side would want God to be weak. But it doesn't matter what anyone wants God to be like or what anyone wants Christ to be like. All that matters is what the Scripture says God is like and Jesus Christ is like and the scripture reveals Christ as someone his enemies should fear and will fear greatly. The world is fine with Jesus as long as he is presented as harmless and wouldn't disrupt anybody's fun. But when you talk about Jesus as the exclusive or only way to God or that he has authority as king and lord to rule over our lives every single aspect of our lives people react against that and so we must acknowledge the true jesus or the whole jesus you can't just believe in a part of jesus you can't just accept a part of jesus the Lord Jesus that we hear most often about and is so precious to us, the Lord Jesus is gentle and kind and full of compassion. Uh, Jesus healed sick people. He fed hungry people. He befriended sinners. And if anyone comes to him now, today, this morning, they will find him merciful and loving they will find him with open arms no matter what you have done or what is in your past. Jesus said, if anyone comes to me, I will never cast him out or turn him away. And we rejoice in that. And we should, and we emphasize that, and we should. But Jesus Christ is also mighty God. He is also king he is judge and he is coming to judge the world and we should rejoice in that too the strongest thing that jesus did the first time he came was to flip over tables in the temple he drove out the money changers with a whip he scattered their gold coins all over the temple floor 
But you know what? That will look like child's play compared to the strength and the fierce anger and the judgment poured out on his enemies at his second coming. There is an astonishing revelation, or maybe I should say an astonishing amount of revelation in these few verses about Jesus Christ. I hope you were listening carefully uh, when Tim read this scripture. And I want you to see these things with me this morning. I, I want us to stand in awe of him together. I want us to adore him and worship him together this morning. This is our Savior who is coming for us. Let this vision thrill you. Let it give you bold confidence in the power and the might and the strength of Christ. Let it make you love him more. This is your bridegroom, but also your warrior king who is coming for you. John begins in verse 11 saying, Then I saw heaven opened. Over and over in the book of Revelation, John says, I saw, if you read through the book, most all of the visions, even most, a lot of the chapters begin, then I saw. The future was revealed to John by visions. He saw these things. Some places it says, I heard this, but for the most part, these are things that John saw. They were revealed to him by Jesus Christ. He saw these things. And here he sees heaven opened. Not an open door in the sky or an open window or uh, a portal that people talk about so much, but heaven itself wide open. I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. Uh, Jesus came into Jerusalem the first time riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He comes back the second time riding a white stallion. Roman generals, victorious in battles, would parade through Rome on a white horse, followed by their captives and the spoils of war. I found it interesting. I looked up and I saw that almost all the great generals of history, from Caesar to George Washington and George Patton, all rode white horses. There is just something about white horses that communicates victory and authority. It communicates uh, conquering, coming to, con to do battle and to conquer. And so this image of Christ on a white horse communicates that he comes back to triumph over his enemies. He comes back to win. Verse 11 goes on, the one sitting on it, on the white horse, is called faithful and true. Christ is faithful and true, through and through. He is the very embodiment of faithfulness. There is not one shred of disloyalty in Jesus Christ. Proverbs 26 says, many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but a faithful man who can find. In other words, lots of people talk about being loyal, but faithfulness 
is so rare. Jesus has it. He is faithful and true. He is faithful to you personally. Paul said in Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. His love for you is a faithful and true love. John said, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He will never withdraw his love from you. He will never leave you or betray you or desert you. He is faithful and true through and through to you. A.B. Simpson wrote and wrote a hymn, all may change, but Jesus never, glory to his name. All your circumstances may change, but Jesus never. People change all the time, all the time, but Jesus never, glory to his name. Jesus Christ was faithful and true to his core mission to die for our sins, and he will be faithful and true to his promise to come again. Uh, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of Christ and he will reign forever and ever. He will be 100% faithful and true to this promise of visible, actual, total, eternal rule on this earth forever and ever. Nothing will stop him. Nothing will stop him. He will never be discouraged he will never change his mind. Isaiah 42 says, he will not grow weak or discouraged before he has established justice on the earth. What a promise. Jesus Christ will not grow weak or discouraged until he has established justice on the earth. Praise his name. Verse 11 goes on, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Christ comes back a second time to judge the world and to make war on his enemies. And he does this with perfect righteousness. When he judges the world, it will be a righteous just, justice, or a righteous judgment, excuse me. No one will be able to accuse God or Jesus Christ of being unjust or unfair unrighteous in his judge, judgments. And when he makes war, it will be a righteous war. He will be fully just and justified and righteous in all that he does. I'm going to break this down just a little bit for a minute. First it says, there's two things about him that it says he does. It says he comes back, he judges. Many people do not know this, but God the Father has given all judgment over to Jesus Christ. John 5.22, Jesus said, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Wow. Jesus said that. Acts 17, 31, Paul said, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. He, God, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness 
by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The man who was raised from the dead will judge the world. Guess who that is? Jesus Christ. If you need more evidence, 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul wrote to Timothy, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Pretty amazing. A lot of people don't know that. But Jesus Christ comes back to judge the world because the, the Father has given him that authority and that assignment. Second, he wages war. You know, we have a book that we both, Cindy and I both like, Cindy has read it probably more times than I have, but we have a book called Christ the Healer. Praise God, he is Christ the Healer. But he is also Christ the Warrior. And he must, he must wage war. He judges and he wages war. The human and the satanic powers that are aligned against the Lord and against the Lord's people will not go quietly into the night. It's going to take all-out war. And that's what we see in the book of Revelation. If Christ did not wage war, there would never be an end to sin, there would never be an end to Satan, and there would never be an end to evil and wickedness and its dominance on this earth. Verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire. Uh, this vision or image communicates, I believe, the supernatural, uh, otherworldly, fierce power of Christ. Regular people do not have fire, flaming fire, proceeding from their eyes. Fire in the Bible is a symbol of God or the manifestation of God's presence. You remember the, I mean, that's all throughout the Bible. If you know anything about the Bible, you know that what I'm saying is true. Uh, the angel of the Lord, for example, appeared to Moses in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. We've all probably heard about the burning bush. Well, that fire represents the presence of God, the manifestation of his presence. And so Jesus comes, he comes back manifesting divine power and ready to judge. And on his head are many diadems or many crowns. Historically, always a king wears a crown. A king, a crown symbolizes a king's authority, his right to rule. Uh, most kings wear one crown. I only know of one exception. And again, that was when we were traveling in Egypt, and you'd see this very strange-looking image of Pharaoh with two crowns, one stacked on top of the other. And he wore two crowns, one for ruling Upper Egypt and another one for ruling Lower Egypt. Christ 
doesn't wear just one crown or two crowns. He wears many crowns because he rules all nations, all peoples, everywhere. Abraham Kuyper said there is not a square inch in all the universe over which Jesus does not say, that's mine. Praise God. We have such an authoritative ruler, king of kings, lord of lords, which we're going to get to. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. All right, there are other names here in this passage that we are told about, that are revealed to us. One of them is that, is that he is faithful and true. That's a name. He is, he is faithful and true. He is called the Word of God. He is called King of Kings and Lord of, Lords, Lord of Lords. Those are three names that we are given. But he has one other name that we don't know. We are not told what it is. And perhaps this name is, is uh, not told to us simply because it's beyond our power to comprehend it. You know, Psalm 145.3 says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. It's beyond our ability to know. Jesus Christ is infinitely great and there will always be more for us to learn about him and perhaps sometime in eternity we will get to learn what this name is that we are not told about here. And judged on the basis of his other names, it's going to be something pretty special. Verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. In this vision, in Revelation 19, the robe covered in blood symbolizes battle. It, it symbolizes the crushing defeat of his enemies. And this is taken... Uh, from a section of Old Testament scripture in Isaiah chapter 63. And in that passage, the prophet Isaiah asks, who is this coming with crimson stained garments? Who is this robed in splendor marching in the greatness of of his strength. And the Lord answers, it is I. Proclaiming vindication, it is I, mighty to save. And Isaiah asks, why are your clothes red and your garments like one who treads the winepress? And the Lord replied, I have, treaden, I have trodden the winepress. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my fury. Their blood spattered my garments and all my clothes were stained. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and the year of my redemption had come. Although much of this is symbolic, judgment will not be a pretty sight. Those who think God is either incapable of judgment or unwilling to judge are so terribly deceived. And the name by which he is called is 
the word of God. God fully expresses and reveals himself in Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ is, is God revealed to us. Uh, in our men's group yesterday morning, we studied that passage where Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Uh, the words that, that I speak to you are the words that the Father gave me. I, I speak from God. Jesus Christ is the Word of God. Verse 14, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen. Just a couple of verses earlier, who was it that was dressed in fine linen? It was the bride, the bride of Christ, dressed in fine linen. I believe this is an image communicating powerfully to us that we share in this great victory with Christ. Christ our commanding general riding on a white horse and then we have this image of us riding white horses and following Christ in victorious conquest. If you need a new self-image, how about that one? Get a picture of yourself riding on a white horse, following Christ, your commanding general. And someday Christ will come back and we will go to meet him and then come with him in victory over his enemies. And we are destined to reign and to rule with Christ. This book tells us that over and over and over. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Uh, this communicates the power of Christ, specifically the power of his word. One word from God's mouth was able to create the world. And when Christ returns, one word from his mouth will strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He strikes down the nations and then rules them. Psalm 2, which is a, what is called a messianic psalm. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now we've all, if, if you're familiar with the scriptures, you've heard that. That's, that's uh, quoted uh, in the New Testament and Hebrews and other places. You are my son, today I have begotten you. I will surely give the nations to you as your inheritance and you shall break them with a rod of iron. So this was prophesied. This was prophecy about Christ clear back in the Psalms. It's re-prophesied or re-emphasized here in the book of Revelation and there will be, will be an actual, actual literal visible fulfillment of this someday. Verse 15 goes on. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. I know these are strong statements. Probably, probably hard, maybe, for some people to hear. 
but so important. Jesus Christ will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. God will not put up forever with all the rebellion, uh, the immorality, the slaughter of innocent lives, all the resistance to his law, all the resistance to his holiness. The, f- the fury of his wrath will one day be unleashed. Robert Mounts in his commentary on Revelation said, any view of God which eliminates judgment and his hatred of sin in the interest of an emasculated doctrine of sentimental affection finds no support in the strong and virile realism of the apocalypse. Yeah, you can't read the book of Revelation and somehow come up with a God who doesn't judge anybody or ever pour out his wrath. But, here's the good news. Today is the day of salvation. Right now, today is the day of salvation. God's mercy and grace has been extended for a long time. And no one needs to face the wrath of God or the judgment of Christ. Paul said, we wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. That's 1 Thessalonians 1.10. And we escape uh, the just wrath of God by repenting of our sins and turning to Jesus Christ as our Savior. Um, he is called our Savior because he saves us from something. He saves us from something really, really bad. He rescues us, Paul said, from the wrath to come. And so this this passage really acts for anyone who does not actively believe in or actively follow Christ today. It acts as a powerful incentive to come to Jesus Christ as your Savior, and that's what He wants to be for you. Again, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul said, In Christ, we are not destined for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is where you want to be. Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Keep in mind this, this vision that, we're, that is before us. Christ, the heavens open, Christ on a white horse coming to judge and make war and on his, name he, on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It, it is written on his thigh so everybody can see it. It's prominent. It's visible. This is the exalted name of Jesus Christ. You know, and the Apostle Paul makes it clear that because Jesus, was, Jesus humbled himself 
He was willing to humble himself in obedience to the point of death on a cross for our sins, for your sins and for mine. He is given, he was given by the Father the name above all names. That at the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow. In the end, all other rulers will be conquered and Christ alone will reign supreme as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There is no one who can oppose him, no one who can stand before him, no one who can get in his way. He has full authority. Isaiah 40, verse 23, he reduces the rulers of the world to nothing. When you come to Jesus and follow him, you are following the highest authority in the universe. Uh, And it, it is so wrong for God's people to place other authorities above Christ. Persecution came to the early church basically over one thing. They would not say Caesar is Lord. They reserved their allegiance for Christ alone because they knew this. They knew this truth that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. So, this vision uh, is powerful, it's stunning, it's thrilling, it strikes a sense of awe and reverence in our hearts. It is meant to infuse courage and hope in those who know and love Him. And yes, it would terrify those who do not love Him or do not actively follow Him. But for those in Christ, it is to give confidence that Jesus Christ will emerge triumphant over Satan and over the false prophet and the beast and all that stuff in the book of Revelation and all who follow them. It's to communicate to your heart that your God is mighty to save. Jesus Christ is mighty to save. I mean, that's one of the prophecies about him in Isaiah. He is wonderful counselor, mighty God. And we are in good, strong, mighty hands. And we're supposed to know that. And we're supposed to live with that confidence and that, that boldness. So, yes, we still have many trials to walk through. We do. And we've still got, we've still got many battles to fight. It, we've still got a lot of stuff to go through. But we see and we know the power and the glory of Christ who is coming for us. And he did say, I will come again. And he will. And so we, we face the future uh, with an expectancy of victory. We uh, see ourselves, as it were, riding on white horses. We see ourselves as those who will reign and rule and be victorious with Christ. Not because we're special, but because we're with Him. And because we're with Him, we win 
and we reign victoriously and gloriously. So, you know, this morning, if, you know, if, as Josh said earlier, and I loved the way he, the Spirit of God came upon him to preach a little bit to us uh, this morning before the service. So, this morning would be a great morning for you to come into the safety of putting your faith in Jesus Christ. If you're not sure that you're an active follower, actively loving Jesus, this morning would be the perfect time to come to him and put your trust in him and to be saved and to know that you are never destined for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we invite you to come uh, this morning to that.